Well, we're beginning our sermon series this morning on First uh, Samuel, and uh, just to give you a, a little um, slice of kind of where we're at, okay? So um, Israel has gone in, they've taken the promised land. Uh, the book of Judges would be the book from which um, what we would c- kind of see is those that those uh, initial years in the promised land okay so the book of judges gives us an account as they've gone in they've taken the land and and if you know that that book we don't want to we can't exegete the book of judges this morning but essentially what happened was as Israel went in as they failed to push out the inhabitants of the land as God had called them to do they they kind of half did the job and so the book of Judges then gives us this picture of what happened to Israel as they lived side-by-side, uh, side, neighborly with the inhabitants of the land in, in many instances. And the, the results were, were um, less than stellar. Um, and the book of Judges gives us a kind of an account of what happened. And the, the common refrain is, in those days, Israel did... Uh, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And the book of Judges kind of bears that out. And so there was a cry in Israel for a leader, for a king. And um, and that's where we're kind of picking up the story uh, this morning in the life of Israel. And um, I know uh, uh, there's a lot of scripture coming at you. First Samuel uh, 1 was fairly long. And then uh, we get the prayer of Hannah that follows. Um, but it's just those are really critical parts of the puzzle as we begin to work our way into the book of First Samuel. And so what I want to talk about, and kind of I think what the, uh, what the first and second chapter um, focus in on for us is uh, the faith of Hannah. And so we want to look at that faith. And the first thing that we want to, we want to uh, talk about is, uh, its significant obstacle. What was the obstacle that that was in Hannah's way with respect to full exercise, if you will, of her faith? And as we look at the story, um, the all-consuming issue in Hannah's life was her barrenness. She was unable to bear children. That's kind of, well, that's one all-consuming issue. The second all-consuming issue is she's in a polygamous marriage, okay? Um, and no doubt, uh, as you uh, as you look at the passage and you look at what was going on with with uh, Paniah and Hannah and Elkanah, uh, you see that uh, the relationship is pretty much what you would expect in a polygamous marriage. It's a mess, right? Um, don't think otherwise. Uh, in just kind of a point here, there's a lot, there's always a lot of, um, uh, if, if you go and you read secular people as they're writing about the Bible and those sorts of things, um, and they're trying, they typically try to point out inconsistencies in what Christians believe, and, and typically this is one of them, okay? And what they'll do is they'll say something along the lines of, well, you know, look at the Bible, the, uh, um, you know, Polygamy was was allowed and was God was just fine with it and and um, and now now you say it's between one man and one woman and um, the reality is the, that 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 couldn't be further from the truth. There's not a uh, there's not a positive outcome and there's not a positive story of uh, polygamous marriage in the Bible. Every one of them is a complete and utter disaster in one way or another. 
Um, and so uh, in this instance, that is one of the burdens as well that Hannah is bearing. But it's her barrenness that really comes to the, to the picture. And so here's, here's kind of the situation. The situation is that she's in this marriage with Elkanah. Paniah has been bearing children, apparently lots of children. And, uh, and in, the, in the relationship, she has been needling Hannah constantly. And, um, and so, you know, uh, if, if, um, a great little commentary. And, and if you're interested in kind of following along and, and kind of doing your own thoughts on the book of uh, 1 Samuel along the way, a great commentary on the book, a very readable and almost devotional commentary is by Ralph Davis. Um, and, and Ralph, Ralph uh, does, he does a kind of a, a fun little thing here, and he, he, he talks about how the conversation might possibly go. Right, and it would be something along the, the lines of you know one of uh, um, Paniah's children coming to her and saying, "Mommy, how come Hannah doesn't have any kids?" And and uh, and Paniah saying, "Oh, you know, within earshot of Hannah, well, the Lord just hasn't opened her womb, and and um, she would like to have kids, but she can't." And you know, and you can kind of follow the conversation going along something like that, but it was constant. The passage is, is, the text is pretty clear. Any opportunity Paniah had to needle her, um, her rival Hannah, she did. And, um, and it caused Hannah great grief in her life. Um, she frequently would weep loudly. The text tells us that she, um, there, there were periods where she would go without eating, um, for long days. Uh, now, now, you know, you may hear that and you think to yourself, geez, what's the big deal, you know? I mean, kids are, can be a real pain sometimes, you know? Um, but in, in that day, okay, to have children and to have lots of children um, was really a badge of honor. And, um, and you wanted to have children. I mean, there, there were a variety of reasons uh, it was good for the family, right? Um, there, many hands make light work. Um, it was good for the nation. Um, you know, if you weren't producing, if you didn't have lots of uh, children, if, if your families were smallish, um, you know, nations that had more, more people, larger populations would come along and squash you. Um, there was a very agrarian society, so there was lots and lots and lots of work to be done every single day just to exist. And so it, it, you had children, and you had lots of children in order uh, for the nation and the family to thrive. And so that was the common expectation. And so to not have children in that society was a very difficult proposition, and and Hannah had none. We do this. We we have similar. Our expectations may be different, but we put expectations on ourselves, men and women in society. Right? Um, just just you know, imagine all of the eating disorders that exist. Uh, why? Why are why do we struggle? Why 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 problems? Uh, why heartache? Why downcast souls? Why depression? Why why uh, anti-depression medications? Um, why all of that? Because there are there to, at least part of it is that there there are expectations that the society places on us, and when we don't feel as if we're meeting them, 
what do we do? Well, we go to extreme measures and we're and you know, we have stomach issues because we're internalizing everything because we perhaps maybe haven't met the expectation that society is placing on us. And that's in a that's in a broad you can paint with a broad stroke um, across society, and, and every culture kind of has its own issues. Um, and then you can go down to the micro level, right? You can go down to individual locations. Um, years ago, when Jody and I were, uh, when Jody and I were, I don't know, I don't know if I got permission for the story or not. Now that I'm thinking, maybe I should stop here. Um, Jody and I were newly married. We, uh, no, I, I can tell this. We were we were going off to seminary and uh, in Southern California, and we got out there, and there were numerous Presbyterian churches with which we could have chosen to worship at, um, and uh, and so we had some good friends that were at a were at a church, and and we started attending there, and um, and we went. I don't know, we, we maybe six months, and. Um, and it, it, it was there was a there was micro pressure in that church on women particularly to bake your bread from scratch and to you know, just do lots of these sorts of very womanly sorts of things I guess I don't know and 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 Jody didn't bake bread from scratch and and we didn't plan our meals on Friday and cook them on Saturday so we didn't have to labor in the kitchen on Sunday and. And it was just a little bit different church for us. And, but there was micro-pressure. Are you with me? And we felt it. And so we went to New Life Presbyterian Church, and it, it had a little different feel. Um, and they, they bought their bread. They squeezed it, though, at the grocery store to make sure it was soft. <laughs> just, but, but there was a micro-pressure, okay? And, 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 and if you didn't, if you weren't doing things a certain way, you felt pressure, and um, and sometimes that's internal, right? It's not meant from anybody else. Nobody else necessarily exerting that pressure on you, but you feel that pressure. And and I'm just trying to get you to see and understand. Hannah's situation was she was very pressured, and when you're when you're in that position. And you think that there and there are expectations coming at you, okay? That can be a, that that can inhibit your faith. Uh, that can cause you to not flourish with respect to your relationship with the Lord. Why? Because you're focused on the societal pressure or the 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 micro pressure from friends or family, and you forget about um, and 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 perhaps your relationship with the Lord suffers. Um, and in Hannah's situation, that was that was happening. If, if you look at verse seven, chapter one, verse seven, you'll you'll see and sense that pressure. Right? It went on year after year. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. And so, one of the voices that's in Hannah's head is the voice of Paniah and the societal pressure. The other voice is the voice of her husband. Look at verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Hannah, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? 
Ah, two voices. The voice of society and Peniah coming into Hannah's life. The voice of Elkanah, her loving, well-meaning husband, coming alongside her, basically teasing, trying to tease out of her, look, don't, I mean, what about me? What about my love? What about the way in which I care for you? And here's where we see the second point, and that is, in the faith of Hannah, there is a resolute expression of it. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, when you read that, you may, you'll notice after verse 9, there's, it doesn't tell us anything else went on. It says, Hannah stood up. And if you uh, read some different folks on this, this is the turning point in Hannah's life. It doesn't mean that they were sitting there and they were eating and all of a sudden Hannah stood up. Um, this is, uh, people have identified it as an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew, uh, much the way we would say uh, something along the lines of, and he put his foot down. Okay, what does that mean? Does it mean he put his foot down? No, it means he says, enough is enough. And for Hannah at this point, for her to, to stand up is essentially the idea is she decisively changed the way in which she was dealing with the situation. She moves into a, a, a different mode, if you will. The two voices have been coming at Hannah. And it's, it's interesting and it's suggestive that Hannah doesn't respond to either voice. She doesn't necessarily respond to Paniah, and she doesn't respond to Elkanah in the passage. There's nothing from Hannah until we get to verse 9. And her expression in verse 9 is, I am going to take it. Where? To the Lord. I'm not going to go in this direction, right? I'm not going to place my worth and my value in either Paniah's poking at me and the fact that I'm barren, and I'm not going to place it in Elkanah's love for me because either one, right, is going to be a bad decision for her. To find her place, her sustenance, her person in either of those locations is not going to cut it for her. And so she makes a decisive turn, and her turn is to the Lord. And it's at this point in the text that she begin, we see her movement towards the Lord. She stood up. Uh, the second half of verse 9, Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Verse uh, 10, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and she prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, verse 11, O Lord Almighty, if you will look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, at first glance, it sounds a little bit like she's making a, you know, making a deal. God, you give me a son, I'll give him to you, and allow, you know, uh, as a, as a, uh, allow him to to take a Nazarite vow, which means he would basically become a servant um, of uh, of the temple, um, and he would go and he would serve there, or, um, and so. She seems to kind of be making this deal with God, right? God, if you give me a son, 
all giving back to you. And, um, and commentators have pointed out, though, that really the shift for Hannah at this point is not, is not just, hey, give me a son, I'll give him to you. It is for the first time in her life this realization that, Lord, if you, if you would have given me a son back yonder, I would, have, I would have made a mess of that situation. But if you give me a son now, I realize, right, I realize it's, it's for me, but it's, and it's a fulfillment of my longing and my desires to enter motherhood and to be a mother. But more than that, it's for you. And that he would be in service for you. And that I would raise him for that. And, and that I would receive the joy and delight of being a mother. But at the same time, that I would raise a son for you. And so Hannah has this shift in, in and her thinking about it and her disposition about it. And so she offers to the Lord. And, um, and, and she's finally saying, I'm not going to be bound by either Paniah nor Elkanah's wishes and thoughts for me. I, I want to be defined by what the Lord has in store for me. And so she offers with the Lord to do it. And, and you'll notice in the text that she there's movement at this point, right? Um, she has the interaction with, with Eli. She's there. She pours her heart heart out before him. And, um, and there's great anguish and there's grief in her prayer. And then she has the interaction with Eli, verse 17, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant what you've asked. She leaves. She goes. Her face is lifted up. It's no longer downcast. She goes and she eats a meal. So she prays, she has peace, and then the Lord responds to her prayer. It isn't, uh, her peace at this point is no longer dependent upon the bearing of children. Her peace is dependent upon the fact that she finally, if you want to phrase it this way, turned it over to the Lord. She finally in her heart said, God, whatever you have for me, I'm good with. Here's the desire of my heart, but whatever you give me, I will be content with it. And that's why when she leaves and she goes away, the text says, as Eli said of her, be at peace. And she was at peace. If you'll look, if you'll look down there, you'll see verse 19. Early the next morning, they got up, they went, they worshiped, they went back home, and Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Verse 20, so in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord of him. You see, the Lord answers her prayer. Her, her peace is not dependent upon whether or not she got what she wanted. Her peace is dependent upon the fact that she decisively decided to just trust the Lord for whatever he had for her. Not always the easiest course of action, but that's what Hannah does in her life. And that is this resolute expression finally in her life where she, I am going to be at peace with whatever the Lord has for me. Let's look at the third point. With the faith of, uh, of Hannah, we finally we see its established foundation. And you see it in Hannah's prayer. Her prayer is divided into three parts. The first part is the first three verses, which is really some personal reflection. Let's look at it. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord, 
and the Lord my horn, uh, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. See, it's very personal. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. This is this is a very personal reflection. Verse three. Some people take as as a uh, as kind of a rebuke of uh, Paniah. Uh, verse three. She says, "Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speech speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed." The problem with that is that she's actually using the second person plural there as she's speaking. And so she's speaking in general, and she's saying, listen, God is not, he's not going to be mocked. And, and, and the proud person, the one who talks proudly, right, the Lord knows the deeds of people, and he weighs them all. And so that's, that's the beginning. That's a personal reflection. Verse 4 through 8, she moves to the more general principle. And here's the more, the more general principle. The more general principle is that God typically turns upside down what we think is the normal course of events. And you'll see it in the way that she lays it out, right? The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. See, he's for the little guy. And she goes on. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who were hungry, what? They'll hungry no more. He'll meet their needs. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. You see, it's not, um, we have expectations um, uh, the, way, the way that we would do things and then the way that the Lord would do things. And the way that he does things is, He takes the person on the ash heap and he pulls them up and he ministers to them. uh, The the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The general order of things and the way that God goes about salvation and life is totally unlike the way we would do it. I I remember we... uh, uh, very early when and I had gotten out of the Air Force and I was involved in a, in a local church college ministry, I remember getting together and, and there was just something that always, it just, it, it bothered me. And, and I expressed it to our, to our college minister. But it was this whole philosophy that the way we were going to go about ministry was we were going we to minister to the athletes, to the super uber athletes, and to the... Uh, and to the, um, the the popular cheerleaders and all this, we were going to try to get them in the group because if we got them and we had them, then other people would start coming and because they would want to be a part of the the popular in group. And and I just always thought to myself, what a what a crazy way to think about ministry, right? Let's go for the popular people and then hope that that all the you know the people that are kind of down low will just get sucked into that vortex. What more do we need than perhaps a picture of Hannah to see that that's not how God operates. That is not the way he goes about things. He, he takes his son who had no place to lay his head, who, who had nothing in him that was attractive to us, and he goes to the cross and he dies in order to redeem us. 
completely unlike. And that's why Paul says it's a stumbling block. Verse 9 and 10 close out her prayer. And you'll notice the way that she finishes it is kind of with a grand finale. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. As Hannah finishes her prayer, she is, she is observant of the way that God's salvation works. And so she's pouring her heart out in this, in this prayer, talking about the way in which God will watch over his saints and he will thunder against those who oppose him. And he will take his king and he will anoint his king and he will use his king in a mighty way for his people. Now, is Hannah thinking about Jesus at this point? No. She's thinking about a young Samuel. She's thinking about his work and what will follow that, right? Does Hannah have any conception at this point about who Samuel is going to be? I mean, Samuel, for all she knows, is going to work in the work with uh, alongside the the, uh, the fellow Levites there, and he's just going to have his nice little ministry, and and that's going to be that. And so she's praying in this big, grandiose way, and she doesn't necessarily have any idea at this point who Samuel is going to be and what's going to follow with with Saul and then with David. But she's trusting the Lord that what he has done already in her life is a microcosm of the salvation that she will bring and that he will bring to his people. And you say at this point, you know, you read through that and you go, well, it's nice and it's kind of pie in the sky. But you wouldn't throw that out. I mean, that's a... That's a smallish picture of what God promises to do in the very end. That he will bring salvation to his people. And right here in Hannah's life, you have just a small vignette of it, right? A broken-hearted young lady in a messed-up marriage and a bad relationship. And the Lord comes and he ministers to her and he pulls her up and he gives to her new hope and and he is essentially promising her that he is making something of her by giving her an answer to her prayer for a son. We wouldn't take that and throw it out. We would take that and go, that is how he deals time and time again with his people, with us. Let's close with this. I want you to think for a moment about how we got here. How do you get to Hannah's prayer, right, which ends this way? And it's through Paniah, isn't it? Hannah, we don't end up at this point in the story if it's not for Paniah. And we don't want to attribute um, all that God has done to Paniah. But this is, this is one of those instances, another instance, if you will, 
in which uh, there, there is a, a, a part of the story which is ugly and gruesome. And it's Paniah who drove Hannah to this really severe point in her life where she cried out to the Lord the way that she did and the Lord answered her prayer. And in it, God used Paniah in her life in order to give us Samuel. You thought about that? If Paniah is not in the story, does Hannah feel that pressure to cry out to the Lord? Please give me a son. Don't let this woman continue to have this kind of reign in my life. Give me a son. She wept bitterly for that son, and all on account of Paniah needling her. And so what we have is one one more instance, one more picture in which bad things are happening and God is using them for good in the lives of his people. It's a reflection of the story of Joseph and ultimately it's, re, it's, it's, a, uh, it's going to point us forward to the person of Christ. It's going to point us forward to a really bad situation. Jesus, rejected by men, flogged, scorned, beaten, spat upon, cursed, sent to a cross, dies. Peter tells us in a sermon in Acts chapter 2, you did that. He looks at the Jews and he says, you did that. And yet God was at work in all of it. And in our story this morning, Paniah was a larger-than-life figure in Hannah's life, needling her all along the way. And it was ugly, and it was messed up, and in the end, God used Paniah to bring about his glory in Hannah's life. You, we don't always see, we get to look back on Hannah's story. We don't always get to see how God is, is weaving together that beautiful tapestry. A lot of times all we ever see is the underneath part of the tapestry with the knots and the fraying and the threads hanging down. But let me encourage you to try to look at the top, to try to see how... How has God used that trouble? How has God used that hardship? How has God used that incident in your life for His glory and for your good? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You this morning for the story of Hannah and for her faith and for the way in which You were at work in her life. Father, it's not a... It's not always easy for us to see how you're working, but I pray that you'll open our eyes. You'll let us see. You'll let us see, Father, how you're working things together for our good and for your glory.